Geopolitics and Empire is joined once again by journalist and lecturer Matthew Errett. He is the founder of the Canadian Patriot Review, and his new book is Clash of the Two Americas, The Unfinished Symphony, Volume 1. I'd like to remind everyone before we start to please subscribe to the Geopolitics and Empire email list, Telegram channel, and everywhere else the podcast has a presence. It helps when you leave a review on Apple, and your donations going forward are going to be essential. You can support me via Subscribestar, PayPal, or cryptocurrency. Matt, how are things uh, going on in uh, Canada, and how are your projects and new book doing? All things considered, they're, uh, th things are doing well, and uh, definitely the circumstances of our age are, uh, are testing our mettle, and, uh, and so it's an interesting time to be alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very interesting, as the Chinese say, may you live in uh, interesting times. Uh, I, I guess I'd like to start by, you know, asking about your decision to focus on uh, America or the two Americas in your book, as you put it. Uh, you know, I suppose one of the reasons I started my podcast was because of my own kind of love-hate relationship with uh, America or certain parts mm -hmm. of it. You know, I was unhappy with American exceptionalism, yet I recognize there are many great things about America. America in history and even in modern times is truly a wonder, a wondrous place, thing, idea, a feeling, uh, and in, and America in many ways determines the fate of many people and nations around the world. Uh, you know, I guess we could say in history, it's one of the biggest, it's the biggest uh, empire that's, that's ever existed as of yet. So, you know, what was kind of the key theme or question driving you uh, in, in writing uh, the book? Well, originally, and it's fun, it, it, we're both talking about the United States, but neither one of us are American. I'm Canadian. Well, I, um, I, I, I am an American citizen. So oh, yeah. you are an American citizen? Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, well, for myself, I, um, I had originally written a, a book series first called The Untold History of Canada. And it was a three volume, well, there's four volumes in the series, three of them were mine. And it was the culmination of a uh, years of labor of trying to figure out what is what is what is Canada first of all obviously as the name implies and uh you know like most people going beginning to develop a political identity after 9-11 I um I didn't have very warm feelings about the United States at all uh naturally and uh that's that's very understandable um but there was still something odd that there were it bugged me that there were so many instances in U.S. history of leaders being assassinated. And I, you know, the more I started developing a, a more conspiratorial understanding of history, and I, I don't say this in a negative way, I think that that's the only competent way to look at history or the world is from the standpoint of ideas and intentions, aka conspiracies, which has become somehow a bad word, uh, which triggers people to turn off their minds. I, I think most of your viewers are aware. That's sad. Um, but none that all that to say, I, when looking at history that way, I began to realize that many of these American leaders, whether it was Lincoln or John F. Kennedy or Warren Harding or McKinley or Garfield or, you know, you start digging up and there's even more who died in office, like eight, uh, you know, uh, Harrison, 1840, um, Zachary Taylor, 1851. Why did so many American leaders die in office? Like, what it, what are they doing? And uh, <clears throat> and so it became increasingly apparent to me that there wasn't just one behemoth monolithic U.S. empire. That's not the case. There was I was like many people not sensitive to this other opposing current within U.S. history that was at odds with itself. And um, and so that changed how I was thinking about Canada, because what was the cause of Canada's problems at the time? You know, I I had very negative feelings about NAFTA. The North American Free Trade Agreement, it had destroyed like two million productive jobs in Canada. It had 
really, uh, and you look at who did a lot of that uh, damage, it was American corporations, which used the deregulation of the system after 1992 to buy up a lot of formerly Canadian-owned enterprises that was not useful to our well-being. Ultimately, it wasn't even that good to the United States either, as we've come to discover. I mean, they've lost most of their factoring and manufacturing as well um, uh, over that period, too. It wasn't that beneficial to Mexico even, because even though Mexico got a lot of jobs, it wasn't, it was cheap labor-based. It was, you know, it didn't inc increase the, the buying power of the Mexican peso. It didn't increase standards of living. So no nation state actually seemed to benefit from these reforms. So then what was controlling the United States such that it did something that was not only destructive to it and Canada and Mexico at the same time, but that only seemed to benefit a small coterie of, of interests who exist above nation states. And then that sort of changed how I was thinking about Canada. What, what exactly came into the United States after John F. Kennedy was assassinated? What was, no, actually the question I started asking was, what was John F. Kennedy doing? What were his policies? Um, and is there anything in common with what Roosevelt, who also died while in office, is there anything common to the policies he was doing and the power structures he was challenging? And is there, was there, was there any commonality to what Warren Harding was doing when he died in 1923 and the power structures he was challenging? What about William McKinley, who was assassinated in 1902? What, what, was, what were his policies? And again, same questions, right? Any connection to Garfield in 1880 and his power structures that he was challenging? What about Lincoln? Right? Who were the who were the networks that they were the, that were their advisors? What was the what was their common view of foreign policy? Was there a common view of how they thought the U.S. should act and, and generate a foreign policy doctrine for its neighbors? And of course, the answer increasingly became clear in my mind that there is a unifying yes, there is a unifying invariable amongst these various cases separated in space and time by a very long I mean you know generations separate these individual lives. But there's a common principle being expressed, which is anti-imperial. There's something about the U.S. Constitution, which was I was trained in a Canadian schooling system, which means I was trained to be anti-American in school. They, they start that early. So there was nothing very special about America before I developed my political sensibilities. It was always something that was just, oh, they didn't have the uh, respect for the mother country that we had as Canadians who were much better people because we never had a bloody war. So we must be better. Um, everybody likes us and we're polite. And so there was this like weird um, self-congratulatory culture, which totally diminished the singularity of the American experience as a phenomenon in history from 1776. And but when you actually look at the battles and you look at the international dynamics of what made 1776 happen, how did you over, how did a small colony organize itself somehow miraculously to overthrow imperial structures of global control run by the, the British Empire, the British East India Company, the city of London, their international you know, espionage networks run out of the, the foreign office. How, how did that happen? And how did it establish a, a, a new type of society founded upon, at least in, in principle, the, the consent of the governed and the general welfare? That didn't make any sense. That, that's not a, was it just for, they didn't want to pay taxes on tea? Is that really it? Or they didn't want to pay taxes without being represented in parliament? Is that really all it was? That Was it just that pragmatic or they wanted their own slaves and Britain somehow didn't want them to have slaves like we're being told from the 1619 project uh, that's currently reshaping critical race theory in the United States? No, that wasn't it. You actually start reading the writings of the people who made it happen. Read Benjamin Franklin, um, read, read Hamilton, read, read these people. And you start seeing a very different picture and you start seeing that there was a global network of co-conspirators 
conspiracies are not always bad. And you start realizing that the American, uh, you know, 1776 to 83 was the effect of a, of a long-term conspiracy to create on the earth for the first time concepts that had only been concepts from the time of Plato's writings about the idea of a philosopher king, about a society that could be premised around the idea of a city of God, like in Augustine's writings, or, or Cicero's Commonwealth, the Platonist in Rome, who tried to stop Rome from going into an empire. Cicero had, had written on the laws, uh, these, these concepts of how do you judge a good law in alignment with the laws of nature, both in physics and in morality, and then translate that into laws that were good versus destructive laws that were just species of violence. And Augustine develops that in a city of God. Aquinas develops that in various forms of writings. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it was a concept, but it wasn't acted upon in a, in, a, in a codified way until it finally happened in 1776. And then it, it carried on forward, you know, but it was never a finished product. And that's why in, in the case of my book, um, I decided to finally take a lot of my writings, pull them together after doing these Untold History of Canada books and write a two volume series on American history. And the first volume, uh, which you referred to, um, is called the, Un you know, the Unfinished Sym Symphony, which deals from 1776 until 1901, the bookend being the, the assassination of McKinley and what was destroyed with his assassination. And then the, the volume two, which should be published in about six weeks or maybe, maybe two months, is going to tackle from 1901 to the future um, with a focus on looking at where is the principle that Ben Franklin evoked? Where does it exist today in the world such that there might be still hope for pathways for a, a future worth living in? And the point, the punchline, I'll just say it right now, is ironically in the Eurasian part of the world, uh, represented by Russia and China currently in the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, I just said the punchline, but it doesn't make sense until you, you read the story. Right. So maybe I should go back to Mongolia or, or Kazakhstan, <laughs> where I used to live. And that's a question, burning question in a lot of people's minds. I get um, questions, emails, uh, messages all the time about uh, where should I go. But hopefully in two months, we can talk again about the, the second volume, but going going back again uh, a bit, you know, my own worldview is that dark forces have always been at play, you know, since the beginning of mankind's history. And you said conspiracies are real. And I actually think history is defined basically by conspiracy. And there are good ones and bad ones. You know, I'll, I'll use the classic example. You know, I'm a fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who participated in the conspiracy to take out Hitler, right? That would have been a good good example, an example of a good conspiracy. And then we have other uh, bad examples. And so uh, in your book, you, you know, something that strikes me is, is uh, this kind of idea of the, the road to hell that's uh, paved with good intentions. And so we have, uh, you detail the, the French Revolution, and then you, you kind of talk about how that was hijacked by, you know, the British Empire or, or the British proto deep state. And uh, essentially that it's kind of like, it was kind of like a color revolution. So there's a continuation from the color revolutions we're seeing today um, ab abroad that, that are being used in foreign countries or the one that was used in the U.S. against uh, Trump or going back, you know, to the French Revolution. Uh, later, you talk, talk about how, you know, the same thing happens in Canada, where the 1867 founding of Canada was designed by British geopoliticians to keep it locked into British Empire and that it was the third time in 90 years Canada had a chance to truly become uh, sovereign so maybe could you comment a bit on you know what, what, what that struggle with the, with the French uh, in France and then Canada this is why I love I love talking to you because there's there's so many interviewee interviewers that I, I interface with who 
I know they don't read the book, but it's like, no, it's cool. It's okay. But you actually read everything. <laughs> you read everything. That's, that's just so good. Uh, yeah, no. <clears throat> Sometimes it's, it's, there's two ways I think of uh, approaching an idea um, of, of what is or what was. Um, and with, you have to both look at what was something, how did it happen, but also how didn't it happen? Where did it fail to happen? Um, because we're, we're dealing with, with um, a complex dynamic, you know, and, and, and history from the standpoint that I'm trying to encourage people to approach history is that it's, it's, a, it's not really about the past. It's about the futures that didn't happen or that did happen. So history is about different competing ideas of the future. And some of them failed, some of them succeeded, some of them should have happened, but didn't because people were assassinated or, uh, you know, there were, there was artificial interventions to disrupt the flow, the natural sort of blossoming of states that would have been more in harmony with human nature and, and our, our happiness and, and will. Um, so what were those potentials? And it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult. It's a new way of thinking for a lot of people to think about history that way, but it's, it's very, it, you, you start getting a lot of rich drama, a lot of rich and having it, reading Shakespeare, reading Rabelais, reading, having some literature under your belt helps a lot too, because you get sort of a taste for what is the substance of, of real drama and real history and real tragedy? Because history is all about tragedy and people who either sometimes didn't were not tragic people who, who had potential and they, they lived up to it, like Lincoln, despite the dangers, or Ben Franklin um, or Kennedy. They were not tragic people, though what happened, you could say, uh, to the society that failed to take up the torch was tragic because they, people could have been bigger. So to go back to your question on the French Revolution in Canada... There are two case studies of where the American, um, this, this process failed to properly blossom, though it could have. And the, I mean, for those who don't know, <clears throat> Canada is set up as the only monarchy of the Americas. And that's a bit confusing for people. Like, why is, why is it a monarchy? You know, we're about to have an election. Uh, it was just announced randomly. Like, that's how things work in a, in a monarchical parliamentary system is you don't have set organized election processes like literally the minority government just said i want to we want to have an election they asked the queen's hand in canada the, the legal head of state called the governor general for permission the governor general gave a royal assent so now we're announced that we're going to have an election in three weeks um it's that's weird that's a weird way of doing things so what is Canada and why did we fail the Ben Franklin challenge is, is one of the early chapters where I make the point Ben Franklin was up here for weeks um, in 1776 before the, the signing of the declaration. He wanted obviously had a lot of uh, allies in Quebec who felt a great sympathy for the US cause. They, they, did, they had no love for the British who had abused the, the French quite a bit after the Seven Years War. So why did they fail to still, despite all of that, accept the offer to join as the 14th colony? So I, I elaborate upon that. I go through some of the elements of the British intelligence operations using Jesuitical operatives as well, who were firmly ingrained and entrenched in the Canadian establishment. Uh, like Bishop Briand was one of them who basically passed a rule saying that you will go to hell and burn forever because you'll be excommunicated um, as a farmer if you fight with Washington. So that that scared. I mean, burning in hell forever was not attractive. Um, the other thing was the uh, warm blanket clause. So, you know, we were given by British you know, we're, Briand said, the bishop said that if we stay allied to the king, we will be granted local controls, local democratic controls for the first time that we would have never have dreamed of having before. And so that was a bribe. It was called the, the principle of enfourapé, 
which is a French word currently in use to describe being screwed over. But the word comes from English in fur wrapped or wrapped in fur. So they basically just wrap people in, in a warm furry blanket and be like, just stay with, stay with, stay with Papa. And uh, so we failed. And as a result, there was a British intelligence hand always available in the Americas to subvert uh, you, the USA itself and to over time. And this is not a new thing. And in my book, I go through how um, you had people like Aaron Burr, the guy who sets up Wall Street, the Bank of Manhattan, who kills Alexander Hamilton, who um, <clears throat> interfaced very closely with his nephew, the governor general of Canada, uh, to create the first effort in 1800 to break up the United States when it was just a couple of decades old. And the idea was that, you know, he was running for the presidency against Jefferson. He was going to win in all likelihood. If Hamilton had not intervened in Jefferson's defense, Burr would have won. And uh, the idea for, from that standpoint was to create a Northern free state uh, confederation allied with the British and tied into uh, British territories in upper and lower Canada. So that would have be, been one new nation a confederation that would have dissolved the constitution completely as the slave states would have become their own confederacy again allied to the british because who's buying the cotton it's the british who's controlling the shipping routes it's the british who's controlling the banking system internationally it's still the city of london back then that's not a new thing so the fact that aaron burr is also in the middle of setting up um wall street and the bank which becomes jp morgan becomes part of the bank of manhattan that he sets up and kills burr it's not a coincidence so all that to say Canada is always there. And when, by the way, when Byrd is, is about to go to jail for the third attempt to break up the United States that he's caught for when he's in 1807, just seven years later, he's, he's, he's already killed Hamilton. He's now, he's now working with a bunch of traitors um, in the Federalist Party to create a, Nor a Western Confederacy after the Louisiana Purchase. And he sets up himself <laughs> to be the head of this new thing that was going to declare war on Mexico or on Spain and, and take control of Mexico, take Louisiana and, and New Orleans uh, using American mercenaries from Andrew Jackson's house, which was the headquarters. Andrew Jackson was his manor provided the home base of recruitment. And this there, the, somebody blew the whistle at the time before it could be carried out. And the idea was to install Aaron Burr after that succeeded in the white house in Washington, DC after deposing the sitting president who I guess would have been Jefferson. That was, uncovered before it could fall, happen. Again, it required some serious Anglo-Canadian operations to make that happen. And where did he go to avoid arrest? Montreal, Canada, where again, his nephew is still the governor general who sets him up with letters that he takes with him to London, where he stays for five years until 1812. In Jeremy Bentham's house, the guy who was the head of British intelligence, sets up Aaron Burr in an orgy-filled opium den of his debauched manner, which Aaron Burr calls the best time of his life, before and he meets with Lord Castlereagh. He's interfacing directly with these guys who are arranging the Congress of Vienna just in 1815, just a few years later, right, to reimpose dictatorship and uh, you know uh, monarchical systems of control onto Europe after Napoleon. So he's meeting, and then he's deployed back into the United States. Uh, a week before the war of 1812 is launched. Why? Because there's a new operation to dismantle the U.S. in another way using its Canadian operations. And this becomes that in the next 40 year dynamic is shaped by the Burr machine, which involves Martin Van Buren. It involves Andrew Jackson, um, who later on goes on to kill Alexander Hamilton's second bank of the United States and empower the slave power of the, of the South after cleansing the South of Cherokee under the Trail of Tears that resulted in thousands of dead Cherokee 
territories, lands that were just given to the slave power, these oligarchs that were then turned the South into this economic powerhouse, fourth most powerful economy of the world, where 80%, like I said, of the cotton production was to Britain, which was using it in their, in their, you know, uh, Charles Dixon's describes the, the terrible situation of their, their textile mills to then feed to India, which used to have textiles, but now they're not allowed because they have to produce opium for China so that you can subdue the Chinese dragon. So they had this whole international closed system network that had to be maintained kind of like that's, that's how technocrats operate. It's, it's through, they think of systems, but keeping the systems in states of subduction and division. So that was what the civil war was all about. And to get to your second point on this French revolution, people should read the book, but yeah, it should have been an American revolution for the first six months. It could have been until all of Ben Franklin's key allies, who were also some of the leading scientists and artists, Lavoisier, the chemist was a part of that. Um, they had, they had a wonderful start, but there was a series of maneuvers, um, run again by British intelligence using some, some, some messed up provocateurs and, uh, anarchists like Robespierre, Danton, Marat, who, uh, subverted the mob, the uneducated mob into a battering ram that resulted in Ben Franklin's allies all losing their heads within the first two or three years of the revolution. And there just being a total vacuum of leadership that could only be filled eventually after five years by Napoleon, which is a whole other story. So anyway. Yeah. I, I would say like, I, I basically over time, you know, I'm, I'm history major. I have an undergraduate in history and over time, the way you're describing things is kind of intuitively the way I've come to see history. And it's just this eternal struggle, uh, you know, of, of good versus evil men who want to be free and, and tyrants. And so it, kind of what you just described from two centuries ago is the same thing that's happening now. It just kind of feels and looks different because, you know, we have all this kind of technology, this kind of dressing that kind of make things look a bit different. I guess that's for me, what you just kind of described is one of the key themes or, or points of your book, how, you know, every uh, nationalist leader of the U.S. who fought to revive, uh, as you write, Hamilton's system of public credit, protectionism, and, and internal improvements in opposition to British free trade were killed or died uh, in, in office. And we kind of see that same thing today around the world. Countries like uh, Iraq or Gaddafi's Libya, you know, where Libya wanted to be yeah. self-sustainable, self have their <laughs> old, they have their own, uh, you know, gold dinar and not not plug into the imf and world bank systems uh, iran and, and so forth so um yeah. all, all these who want to retain their sovereignty are they're being deposed and, and balkanized and it seems that early on one of the goals as you say was to split uh, america through the civil war uh, so, so to prevent it from unifying and we see that same that's the same old strategy divide and conquer divide and conquer they did it to U yugoslavia you know where my my parents came from and they, they're doing it now uh, all over the place so you know what are your thoughts on on that as well as how it's being applied uh, today oh that's so astute yeah no it's such an irony isn't it that yeah the countries that people think of as the least american Gaddafi's libya exactly was was invoking that same governing spirit that animated the best of these great american leaders um to adopt a like you said it's it's simply having a, a political econ economic outlook that actually um values your national interest and your people that's that's really it you have a national that's that's why the oligarchy and i use the term oligarchy because there there is a, a continuity of power 
that's maintained from certain families that, you know, some come, some go, but there's a general continuity of power and internally organized cultural tradition, which is very different from the thing that a lot of us, I would imagine, interface with in life. It's a different cultural closed system, um, which has a continuity going back to the times of Rome and, and Babylon, I would say. But um, <clears throat> why do they hate nation states? The, so- the modern sovereign nation state is something that people like their upper level managers, Henry Kissinger, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and Bernard Lewis and, and, and you know, George Soros. They're obviously they speak so openly of their, their venom for the idea of the sovereign nation state, how incompatible it is with open society, with, you know, the rules based order. It's, it's not. It's not based on selfish nation states. Um, they hate it. Why do they hate it? It's because the nation state existed as a relatively modern phenomenon, as a part of a freedom struggle in the continuity of human emancipation against this evil. It's it's not. It didn't exist before the Renaissance. There was there was feudalism. We we had city states, but we didn't have anything that had a cent like enough of a central power that could wield as a weapon anything that could take on this globally extended monstrosity of empire. It didn't exist. So it, it, it's the effect of something higher than people realize. And when you have a nation state, you can use your national sovereign powers to not pay a debt that private financiers are demanding you pay. You can do that. If the debt, if paying the debt's going to hurt your people or undermine your national sovereignty or stability, you don't have to do that. You can you can have a debt jubilee. You could you could break up the banks. You could issue your own currency based on maybe, like you said, gold back dinars. You know, you you could you could give that currency value by making it work. By, by ensuring that bonds are, are tied, that you issue, that people, maybe even your own citizens can invest in, that are, that are backed by the future growth of your, of your state. They could be tied to projects. And those projects could be like, like Gaddafi's great man-made water project. It might be a long, you know, low interest, 10, 15 year project. But you know that that's a different quality of activity of the investment than let's say speculating on a commodities, you know, market or, you know, a digital currency that may or may not have any value. Uh, that's just totally tied to artificial whims of the marketplace, but you're you're actually doing things that th- that water project, if it was not destroyed by NATO, which it was, it would have cre- increased the overall productivity standard of life, created a new job market, increased workforce, increased skill sets, and had all sorts of non nonlinear effects of new indus- new new industrial corridors being produced, new sets of relationships with even Canada, you know, like SNC Lavalin, the Canadian enterprise, the construction firm was helping enormously that would have totally changed the relationship of power dynamics internationally it would have solidified and empowered a certain way of thinking about self-interest in within uh power interests in the west that might have resisted a policy that canada ended up going along with which was we ended up fully embracing and supporting the destruction of libya would there have been more resistance if the great man-made water project had gone through sure um also Belt and Road, right? Like the Belt and Road Initiative, it would have been a very synergistic program that that we see now would have tied in so wonderfully with uh, Bashar al-Assad's Four Waters, uh, Four Seas project, which would have connected rail and roads and other industrial corridors to the great, you know, the Caspian Sea and the Red Sea and the Mediterranean and the Black Sea with all of the other countries around. What what effect would that have had on diminishing radicalism and extremism, uh, poverty, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And also, again, very synergistic with what we now see with the Belt and Road Initiative coming through with rail corridors through Afghanistan, through uh, 
Iran is increasingly jumping on board. There's programs to extend rail and development corridors uh, throughout the Middle East for the reconstruction of Afghanistan, for Syria, uh, into Af- Africa. Like that—that's how you have to think. You have to think on a, on, a, on a global level, the way the enemy does, the way the empire does. That's how they think. That's what. They, that's why they killed Gaddafi. That's why they tried to destroy Syria and send it back to the Dark Age. That's why they did what they did to Afghanistan. It's it's all global, and people get stuck into geopolitical analysis of very myopic details that destroys their ability to to see solution pathways, which I'm sorry, like there are solution pathways that people like Alexander Hamilton, like Lincoln were able to see. And, you know, when you actually look at Lincoln's allies in Russia, like Tsar Alexander II, they're the, one of the big reasons why, and I get through this in a chapter in my book written by my wife, is uh, that um, a big reason why the, the U.S. Civil War didn't go the way the British wanted the game masters in London um, was because Tsar Alexander II negotiated with Lincoln circles with William Seward to send the Russian naval fleet to the coast of the United States as a message to the French and British powers that if you jump in on the side of the South officially, as you were going to, it'll be war with Russia, which kept them at subdued. And then afterwards, Russia adopted the uh, the program of protectionism that Lincoln had used with his, with his, again, leading economic advisors like Henry C. Carey. It was protectionism, greenback state credits for big projects like the, the Transcontinental Railway, um, bonds like the 520 bond that was tied to five to 20 year mature maturation that any citizen could invest in, not only to win the war, but also to capitalize on industrial and, and infrastructure projects. Very different way of doing things. It was anti-free trade and it was, it was tied to a moral principle of a unified nation acting in its long-term self-interest for the future by creating new potentials that didn't exist. And also... Uh, working with your neighbors to help them liberate themselves from imperial manipulation, which is why Russia was able to bring in the transcontinent, uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway, modeled on the United States experience using the same techniques, which again, I go through policy by policy, player by player, despite the fact that Alexander II was assassinated, as was Alexander III, both, uh, both assassinations as were many others in the Meiji Restoration Japan period, in France's period in the 1890s under Sadi Carnot, the president who was assassinated in 1895 with his foreign minister, Gabriel Hanuto. Uh, they were very much st- students of the Lincoln method, of the Hamiltonian method. And they were working with Otto von Bismarck as well, who was working to apply this in the form of the Zollverein, Germany, the customs union, which unified Germany for the first time under industrial and rail programs that were also going to extend to the Ottoman Empire to keep the Ottoman Empire from collapsing by modernizing them in a specific type of way. That didn't happen because, you know, <laughs> the British kicked over the chessboard and everything yeah. went to fire. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you kind of, you you answered my next question. You read my mind. So I was gonna uh, bring up that that chapter where you also, you know, you mentioned um, Alaska as, uh, you know, it seemed Russia's sale of Alaska to the US was a decision to counterbalance um, against the, the British empire because both, both America were, threatened by the British uh, Empire, and so, so was uh, Russia. And we kind of see that continuation uh, to, to today when Trump was president, you know, there was this kind of Trump, of course, we know Russiagate wasn't true, but this, and we see, still see today that there's this conservatism in Russia that's linked with, uh, you know, the conservatism in America today, this national patriotism, and, and we see it goes back uh, two centuries, and um <clears throat> I guess one of my other questions I would have, if I'm not mistaken, you pit in your book kind of the, the global struggle between 
natural law, national sovereignty, and this potential multilateral world order, which you, you've kind of discussed, mm -hmm. versus a British Malthusian supranational kind of eugenics world order. And, you know, it's epitomized in your, I think it's the last chapter in your book about Hex, Huxley's X Club. And so kind of like, you know, today we're seeing now the Taliban have taken Afghanistan and, and we have now the Great Reset's kind of neo-feudal uh, eugenicist vision of the world, which is being made possible through these vaccine passports that are seemingly marching forward in country after country. And we were talking about this uh, before the interview. And so uh, you, you mentioned that in these European revolutions, governments, you, you know, back as as they've tried, uh, as you've detailed, to, to kind of overthrow this yoke, you know, these revolutions where governments honestly believed the purpose of law and government was the common good. Today, it seems that this has become inverted. It seems that all of our governments overnight have become like satanic and attacking their own populations. And even U UN special reporter Nils Mesner, Mesner is uh, investigating this. So, you know, where do you kind of see us? today where, where does humanity find itself in 2021 oh that's a big question um if you don't mind i'd like to just touch on the thing you said at the beginning first before jumping to the present because that, that's a, that's a rich question um in regards to the sale of alaska i gotta say just because i feel so strongly about this and it, it, it was one of the big paradoxes in my mind trying to figure out canada's history and what is canada early on um that was something that that stood out as weird because it's like there's these anomalies that should capture the attention, but they don't. People just brush them aside or they're happy with, with official narratives. They, they don't think about interesting anomalies enough. And this is one that, that stuck out in my mind is a why, why the sale of Alaska in 1867? Why? Um, obviously, seeing the Russian role in saving the United States in the Civil War uh, helps put some meat on the bones of that question, but it still doesn't fully answer the question. Um, but it also creates a context in which there is Canada and why was it just a couple of weeks after the sale of Alaska was effectuated, all in secret by William Seward? Why is it that just a few weeks afterwards, we had our confederation, our articles of confederation passed in the British parliament that created for the first time a constitution so-called and a confederation of uh, Canada as we know it. Knowing that that conference that, that created those, that constitution, the, the British North America Act in 1867, July 1st, the conference itself began during the Civil War in Charlottetown in 1864. So, sorry, 1867 was when we had the BNA Act passed. Three years earlier in 1864 is when the actual conference happened that wrote it up during the Civil War. What's up with that? Why during the Civil War are you, are you putting so much effort into this? What about Lincoln's allies in Canada? How is it that people don't learn about the fact that there seems to have been in very high level positions of power in Canada? People like Isaac Buchanan, the president of the executive uh, party of, of, the, of the liberal party of the day, uh, who was an Lincoln ally who fought to create, who's trying to create a, an American Zolverein with Canada as an independent nation working with Lincoln's USA during the Civil War in 1863 um, as a way to block the British dumping of goods that were keeping Canada underdeveloped, that was destroying the United States to create kind of like what uh, uh, Bismarck had been doing in Germany. So to create, it's kind of like, it seems like NAFTA, but it's different because it's based on a different principle. It's based on a, on a protective tariff around the continent, around North, North America, and internal improvements tied to the greenback style, large-scale investments of your rail, of your canals, of your things that are tied to uplifting the, the mental and quality of physical life of people. So it's a very different idea, again, of economy. Don't, don't 
take the similarities of NAFTA too seriously there. But why were why were they out? Why were these pro Lincoln forces ousted? Um, and then why was BC, which had such a pro annexation movement, because Canada was really at the time just a, a few little like provinces on the on the Atlantic side, four, and then British Columbia was this isolated lone colony. What was separating? What was the rest of Canada? It was a private company for the past 260 years before that called the Rupert's Land, aka Hudson Bay Land. It was a private zone tied to the British East India Company that was like the 80% of Canada. Why did, why did that get sold so quickly? It was sold immediately pennies on the dollar by these companies to the Canadian government uh, to, to get uh, British Columbia on board with Confederation because British Columbia didn't want to. They were an isolated colony. They were choking financially. The gold rush had just created a bunch of bubbles that popped. Nobody had a future. The only economic activity they had was with San Francisco. And so why did the British annexation movement to join the United States fail? Why did Lincoln's policy, which was being expressed by people, his advisors, which involved using Alaska as a springboard to take the transcontinental railway, which was finished in 1869 and connected up the West Coast through British Columbia into Alaska, into the connecting zone for the old, for Eurasia, which was supposed to connect down. And you could see these maps that I, I, I found that I, I published in my, in my book, uh, showcasing like, you know, William Gilpin's international land bridge of, of rail going down to Africa, Asia with the spring, with the connecting point being the Bering Strait. So all of these things should have, that was the momentum. Why didn't it happen? And, and so from that standpoint, you could better appreciate what was the real geopolitical reasons for the British uh, North American Act, the sale of Alaska, you know, the, the creation of Canada as we know it without the mythologies, you know, just honesty, and it helps. Uh, for the, the second part of your question regarding the Malthusian, the X Club, the, 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 the restoration of empire in the face of all of this progress, because the empire had, had weakened itself enormously, right? Go back in time to that period. If you're a, an imperial, if you're a Lord Palmerston type of geostrategist looking at your globally extended system, You've just exerted massive resource allocations towards the opium wars, the second opium wars against China. You've exerted massive influence and, and expenditures in uh, supporting the Confederate South. You know, the British were building warships used by the South uh, to fight Lincoln. Uh, that failed. You had already spent a lot of effort in working with France and some corrupt people in the Ottoman Empire to get Russia into the Crimean War to dismantle Russia and also to dismantle the Ottoman Empire. Um, you put a lot of effort into two years of, of trying to destroy the uprisings in India against the controlled famines that killed millions by Malthusian policy. That was the British policy was use the gifts God gave us of famine and disease and war to check population. Malthus writes that directly, you know, <laughs> kill babies unless room can be made for them by the deaths of, deaths of old person persons. He's a, he's a mathematician. He's, and that's why he's employed by the British East India Company to work at Haleybury College to train, you know, John Stuart Mill <laughs> and all of the, 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 the ideologues who would become the, the, the upper level thought controllers of the empire. So, you know, Britain had, had stretched itself far and they couldn't stop this momentum for progress and of nations embracing a multipolar win-win orientation for uh, developing their, their, their interests as well as their neighbors in knowing that we get more out of seeing the world as a non-zero sum system. You can create more wealth if you create peace, not division, right? You encourage creative thought instead of stupidity. You can create more in the long term, which is better for everybody. And, and that was that truth. It's a fundamental truth. It's scientifically groundable truth 
of self-interest. It's not just philosophically nice. Uh, that was so powerful. And the only way that they could bust it up was, uh, I mean, there was on the one hand, a certain type of like, um, I think of it as, as a corporate management reshuffling. So when you're, when you're a corporation, if you've got a business, it's not producing uh, revenue anymore, there's mismanagement. You could either declare bankruptcy and just give up, or you could bring in management consultants, evaluate your different departments, you know, re- reintroduce innovative ideas. And that's what was done with the British Empire. There was a sort of reorganization under, there was a recognition of a lack of creative uh, adaptability. And uh, you had, as, as I go through in the last chapter of 15, um, Thomas Huxley was a young, very creative, very misanthropic uh, young man who was discovered, he was talent searched and discovered, um, and was very quickly by his, within his twenties, made a very a leading official within the British Royal, Royal Society. And he was given certain privileges. And again, he wasn't born from a rich family. He was born from a poor family. He just saw syphilis patients. He was working in the ghetto slums of London. He was working bad. So he developed this, this hate and that hate channeled a lot of creativity. And, uh, he was given a responsibility for a project to manage um, a new set of theories that needed to be cooked up to justify scientifically uh, empire and to cohere the empire in a more uh, satisfying way where it could be more unified in its parts. Uh, that became the Darwin Project. So Thomas Huxley became an early enforcer and controller of Darwin. Darwin rarely ever debated, he never actually debated his own theories in public. It was always Thomas Huxley, his bulldog, who was always going out and part of the... Um, Part of the the propaganda machine that was created was his X Club, which was sort of a dining club set up in Cambridge, interfacing with some of the best misanthropic scientific minds representing different fields of anthropology and sociology and uh, even geology, astrophysics, uh, you know, economics, literature. Matthew Arnold was a dining partner on this thing. Um, and they basically created a regular dining club that organized like an early think tank. Um, a new strategic set of policies and uh, and nature magazine was uh, created out of this group as well, which I get through um, as a, as a propaganda instrument. So with this came at least now a new ideological foundation to start creating coherence, but that was still 1865. This was created the X club, right? Darwin's project was only published in 1859. Um, there was still lack of means of carrying it out. How do you effectuate now the policies? These are nice thoughts nice, evil, whatever thoughts, but how do you carry it out? So the first, there, there were several other think tanks that would do a bit more of the dirty work, one of which was called the Fabian, Fabian Society. And that was set up in uh, 1873. Um, using a certain retweaking of some of the programs for anarchist mobs of the Young Europe movement of Mazzini and Palmerston that had been useful for the 1830s and 40s and 50s to just create anarchy and destabilize nations in Europe and also some in the United States. Um, but it wasn't coherent enough under a, a, a unified ideology. So that the Fabian Society became sort of a, a socialist, a qu- not a real socialist, because it's not real socialist. These are people who actually, if you look at George Bernard Shaw or the Webbs or later on H.G. Wells or other members, Bertrand Russell was a member, Julian Huxley was later on a member of the grandson. Um, a lot of the people who were high-level Fabians themselves were not, you couldn't consider them socialists because they didn't really care about people. Um, they just liked it as a cover to attract good people who were in labor to a cause that would put them in a, in a controlled environment with a priesthood scientifically managing the system from, the, from above. 
Um, so that became one thing that set up the London School of Economics. Lord Balfour was a member. Uh, Lord Mackinder was a member who uh, went on to create geopolitics. Um, he ran the London School of Economics actually for a while. But then also you had the, the roundtable movement um, using some of the money, all of the money from the, uh, the funds of, of Cecil Rhodes, who had you know, destroyed Africa, raping of diamonds and, and cotton for a long time in Rhodesia. And uh, when he died, um, his money was used according to his will. And uh, some sponsors, <clears throat> like I think it was William Rothschild was an early one, some other higher level oligarchs, to um, use that money towards the creation of an array of th- other types of think tanks called the Roundtable Movement. That was managed by this guy, Lord Milner, who worked in South Africa, too, to put down the Boer War with a grouping of young young boys uh, like Philip Kerr, who goes on to become Lord Lothian later on, the, the ambassador to Washington. Um, or anyway, Lionel Curtis is another big one. But all of these guys are called the, uh, the Milner Kindergarten, uh, who manage the Roundtable Movement. They become leaders of the Roundtable Movement. And uh, they... Another part of the money goes towards the creation of a, of a Rhodes Scholarship Trust system. So Rhodes Scholars are, are created to be indoctrinated in, in Oxford and then redeployed back into their part of the world uh, to maintain coherence and advance a bit more of a longer term agenda. The Roundtable Movement becomes, the, you know, it, it manifests several other forms after World War I, which was, by the way, orchestrated entirely by these groups. World War I was not something that, that needed to happen. It was, it was an artificial war. That could only happen with some serious manipulation of history by these forces and a lot of assassinations and coup d'etats. Um, but they created things like the Council on Foreign Relations. So that became the, the roundtable movement in, in the United States in 1921, was created by a bunch of Rhodes Scholars and Fabians um, in the, the, at that time embedded in the U.S. bureaucracy. They were still were not controlling things, but they came in, in in high numbers under Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt before that. Um, and the, the Council on Foreign Relations, we know, you know, they inter- they didn't, it's essentially the Chatham House. I mean, the Chatham House movement in London, which was the Royal Society for International Affairs, that was part of the Versailles Treaty Agreements. It was, it was created, on, it was brought online as part of that whole package after World War I, um, as well as the League of Nations. Uh, it, was, it was all part of the s- different aspects of the same world government beast. Um, they couldn't just call themselves Chatham House of America, so they gave themselves Council on Foreign Relations. And you know, we had versions in Canada and and in uh, New Zealand and and South Africa, and actually a major organization which today um, runs a lot of anti-Chinese psyops. And that's very attractive to a lot of people who are smart. Um, is the China Africa podcast, uh, which some of your viewers might know of, which was entirely funded by the the Roundtable Movement of South Africa. Um, is it anyway. China Africa project? I think I, subscribe. that's the one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I, you know, uh, that, that sort of sets the tone for a lot of the stuff I go through in volume two. So I'm not going to spoil it too much, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just comment, you know, cause uh, my, I have my undergrad in, in history and the masters of international relations in, in, in Geneva, you know, and I'd spend a lot of time in the original league of nations, uh, building and library and <laughs> having lunch yeah. over there. And, it's funny the stuff that they teach you in you know mainline university you know in history it's it's none of this and so as I was waking up you know the time between my undergrad and master's degree on my own I was reading all this stuff and and you know I was reading Lord Lothian and, and the Milner and and Rhodes and all of this stuff and it was just mind blowing it's opening your eyes and you're not you're not taught any of that in, in international relations or, or history and for me 
that's the key stuff. That's the key yeah. driver of history. That's the reality. And what we're teaching, what they're teaching us is, is bunk. So, I, you know, yeah. in, be, in that time between, I spent thousands and thousands of dollars on Amazon. And as a student, I had all this time, you know, a, a year or two, and I just going through all this stuff. And then you get to read, you know, G. Edward Griffin and all this stuff. And then, yeah. you know, the, the turn of events later, I get to have lunch with G. Edward Griffin, you know, and, and, and meet him. And so it's, it's fascinating how things turn out. And so just kind of like, my, my final question would be just to get your final thought where we are today, where mm. what you described right. towards the end of the 19th century, this kind of scientific, let's call it dictatorship, it really feels that a century later, now it's really coming into its own, in, in, into fruition. And now they're like applying. And, and I think they tried to do it through through the Nazis and Hitler. We, we know that you know, IG Farben, the pharmaceuticals financed Hitler that these, you know, um, these same eugenicists you talk about gave their, you know, Rockefeller gave the ideas to Hitler. So they were backing him ideologically, financially. He tried to carry it out. He failed. And it seems now they're they're putting in these vaccine passports, social credit type systems completely. They're, they're attempting to once again, but like never before at this scale that, that I've seen in history, lock mm -hmm. down restrict everyone's movements globally and just you know just your thoughts on, you know we can call it the great reset that's kind of like the symbol you know whatever but what's your feeling now kind of where we are going going forward it's because it's kind of freaky like it's it's here in two mexican states they've declared uh, a third one is thinking about it and uh, you know we see it in other parts of the world they're restricting people's freedom some people can't go to hospitals if they're not vaccinated so they're gonna like die from their ailment in the in the name of public health because they won't get vaccinated they're gonna they're going to be killed by this the, the hospital because they can't get you know deal with the the sickness that they have. So you know what, what's your thought where we are now? Yeah, no, and you and I you and I were talking uh, just before the podcast right about how here in Canada, I was watching a video of a, of a, a podcaster in Montreal who wanted to take his family to New Brunswick, and uh, he was just showcasing and filming the border between Quebec and New Brunswick just on a little vacation had armed guards. It was a checkpoint with serious, a serious uh, checkpoint. And uh, yeah, asking for his papers. What are your reasons for going there? Are you planning on being vaccinated? Are you already? Uh, when you leave, like all of this, stuff, it's like you're in another country. Um, and, you know, the federal government as well here in Canada. Um, so your question strikes close to home. I mean, has announced vaccine passports federally on September 1st which you know it's just a step away from a more broad uh lockdown into districts and other other things which is just very i mean if you've read the writings of people who uh have created these scenarios pandemic global pandemic scenarios going back to dark winter in 2001 or uh, operation lockstep sponsored by the rockefellers in 2010 or event 201 was more recent but there's many others in between they just say what they're going to do. It's it's not it's not a mystery. You know, you can w watch some of the predictive programming crap on Netflix if you want to see also how they're thinking. Um, it's not just fiction. They're doing that because it's predictive programming. It's part of the geopolitical uh, tool chest. So in that sense, yes, it's um, it's a scary it's a scary uh, idea and dynamic. Um, I do get a lot of hope. I would be a lot more depressed were there no resistance from actual sovereign nations working on invoking. This process that I, you know, we've been talking about regarding the Belt and Road Initiative today, the Greater Eurasian Partnership, which has increasingly been expressed by Russia and China as the bedrock, in, Iran has increasingly become a member of that. Um, 
130 countries or so have signed in different forms memoranda of understanding with to join the Belt and Road framework in varying ways. China has increasingly vast influence in ports in South America. A lot of nations who have been beholden or at least trapped by the Western uh, technocratic system of governance are increasingly looking at escape routes, pathways out of the sinking ship because the financial system is also a ticking time bomb of bubble. Um, so they're they're you know seeing that there is a development pathway for the future that they could work with. So I think you would get inc- a lot more people jumping on board that already Afghanistan is increasingly we're seeing uh, tying its destiny to the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which you know we could talk about maybe in a future podcast. So there is resistance, and that's my whole point. There is top down uh, an alternative system which is fighting with creative energy and force, uh, which is in, in alignment with what I recognize as being a force of natural law in history um, and the future. It's very future oriented. It's very creative oriented. It's very much based upon the defense of the people and the sacredness of life. Now there's problems, and I'm not saying these are like all angels in Russia and China. And everywhere. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the orientation towards self-interest is in alignment with all of these other things I'm talking about, despite the problems. And it's something that keeps Henry Kissinger's and other technocrats up at night. Now, the Great Reset, it's it's it comes out of a neo-Malthusian revival. It's nothing original. I mean, this is a you know the the World Economic Forum at Davos was created at the same time that the uh, Club of Rome was created, at the same time that the post-industrial society was ushered in in 1971 when the U.S. dollar was removed systematically from the fixed exchange rate system uh, that had been sort of the bedrock of of Bretton Woods after World War II. So that was done under George Shultz, Henry Kissinger, under Nixon, who were coming in with the Trilateral Commission at the time that was officially set up in 1973, but it already the ball had begun rolling. In 1970, and it was a Rockefeller-funded initiative. Uh, but all of the, I mean, you know, you just look at what the Trilateral Commission members were in terms of all of Ke- Carter's cabinet, much of Gerald Ford's cabinet, and onward. Um, so there, there was a, an, it wasn't just one thing. I mean, the, the program was to get rid of the anti-Malthusian political economic traditions of the West and replace it with a new Malthusian a system of controls and a paradigm, an associative paradigm of, of ethics that would come online with a consumer society. It was, it was, it was literally a reset of thousands of years of, of human civilization that was being attempted there by the likes of Kissinger and, and his Club of Rome devotees around him that brought, I mean, people like Alexander King, Aurelio Pichai presented frequently at the early stages of the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab. Um, and the idea was always there are limits to growth. You thought there were no limits because you thought humans were sacred and you thought we had creative thought that could discover things of nature and and translate them to new discoveries of technology and science that allowed us to have more people at higher standards of life. And we could change nature in in both destructive as well as sometimes good ways, uh, like greening deserts the way Gaddafi was doing, right? That's you're changing nature a lot. Uh, You know, a Kissinger like, or, you know, somebody who's a devotee of the COP26 would, would frown upon that type of changing the natural equilibrium of nature by greening a desert the way Gaddafi was doing. But is, is that is that unnatural? Was the desert always a desert? No, I mean, 5,000 years ago, Libya was green and lush. So was a lot of Sahara. Why did the water go underground? I don't, we don't know. But the fact that we can actually do things that involve bringing fresh water above ground and increasing, you know, uh, <laughs> green on the earth is interesting. Maybe it's not actually unnatural that the human mind is a part of nature, perhaps, that when we act in a certain way, we we can make nature do what it already wants to do, but we can do it better. It doesn't have to wait 5,000 years to become a green, to make a desert green. Maybe we could do it in 10. 
Um, so they don't like that idea. Um, so the, the whole limits to growth idea was taking the Malthusian formula of, you know, human beings reproduce geometrically, food reproduces arithmetically, resources diminish in turn. To, and, and that was what the Malthusians always used as a mathematical formula to forecast where your population crisis was going to be such that you could determine uh, carrying capacities that were acceptable by the elite for humans, uh, which they would never do democratically unto themselves. So you always needed to have something from above doing it for them. Um, hence, eugenics, social Darwinism uh, were nice applications of that at the turn of the 19th century and into the rise of Hitler. The point that I, though, think that is very important is that there, though there is a long-term continuity of intention and negative conspiracy, it's wrong to think of this thing as always having been the same thing. Because like you said, you, you alluded to this, they've tried, they, it's not like they are doing what they, if they had the power that they profess or try to project to the, their, their victims that they have, they already would have gotten done what, they've, what they want a long time ago. Why didn't they already get what they want? Why did Hitler lose? Though they put so much resource and effort into the rise of fascism. Wall Street and London banks put a lot of effort into that, into eugenics as being a new governing doctrine in the 1930s. Why was that subverted? Why was that stopped? What was done by Franklin Roosevelt? What was awoken in uh, other nations and other collaborators around him who had a different vision of reviving the, the Abraham Lincoln view of win-win cooperation with the US-China-Russia alliance as bedrock for the post-war age? How did he fight Wall Street? How did he break up the Wall Street banks? How did he sabotage the London Conference of 1932 and 33? How did Roosevelt do that? He just went in there and he sabotaged the entire world government League of Nations conference to create a one world government in 1932, 33 as a solution to the economic crisis. Their solution was get rid of nation states, give central bankers the power to bring back stability to the economy. Why did Roosevelt say no to that when all of the other uh, Democratic Party leaders want that? How did he subvert that? Um, how did he unleash state-backed credit through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which operated in many ways the way Lincoln's Greenbacks did in funding infrastructure development through the New Deal, Tennessee Valley, Valley Authority, rural electrification. How did that happen? Right? Um, there's so many other things. Why? So all that to say, then why was his vision, which was clearly enunciated by him, by St which was shared by Stalin. I don't care what people think about Stalin, uh, Stalin's bad things that they think Stalin did. Maybe he, maybe, maybe he did do bad things. But the point is, he definitely uh, wanted Roosevelt's vision of a win-win system of cooperation for development to to guide the post-war age. And neither one of them trusted Churchill because they knew what Churchill represented. And, you know, what was it that came in when Roosevelt died early and his enemies took charge and all of his allies were labeled red commie uh, traitors whose careers were destroyed or they, were, they died early on? So these are these are the things that I think empower us because then you also see what, what it gives you better appreciation for what what was it that John F Kennedy stepped into what was he self aware that he was picking up a torch for how did Eleanor Roosevelt interact and, and help give JFK the edge and also provide him briefings <laughs> into the nature of this evil what about Charles de Gaulle and, and uh, Douglas MacArthur who also organized the hell out of John F Kennedy who was supposed to be one of their elites who was supposed to be a you know London School of Economics Fabian boy but he didn't behave that way. He didn't behave the way his daddy behaved. Um, so what was he doing? What was he up against? And what did he invoke? Because when you see things that way, you realize that the oligarchy is actually much weaker than they want uh, us to believe they are. And the Great Reset is just a revival of the same, same thing that we've seen time and again, run society to dark ages and collapses because these oligarchs just want to diminish. The, the one thing that distinguishes human beings from animals 
other animals in the biosphere is that we are metaphysical in the sense that our, our species character or behavior, if you look at what, what defines us as different from the behavior of, of other forms of, of orangutans on the earth over time is we make fire. We don't just make fire, but we discover the laws of nature. Other animals run away from fire. They're afraid of it instinctively. We not only harness the fire, but we can then improve upon the fire by discovering qualities of nature and translating those and communicating them metaphorically through imagery, through symbols that we then create. We transmit to, to awaken thoughts in the minds of others that come after us um, in order to you know, increase our relationship with the laws of nature. And when we do it right, when we're, we're, when we're operating on moral principles of, of the benefit of our neighbors, of our care for our children, our unborn grandchildren, respect for those who sacrificed of themselves to give of themselves, you know, for us, when we operate and situate ourselves in that broader contextual expanse and shape our identities accordingly in our, our, you know, what, what comes with our identities, our choices, our, our, our will, our, our priorities uh, are changed that way. When that happens, our species character is different. We have 9 billion, and you could say that that's a natural or a sign that we're a parasite on nature the way a lot of these, you know, misanthropes want us to believe that who teach our children. But maybe it's a sign that we're doing that we're different and we could we could be better than we are, that it's great because that's more minds to, to discover more problems in a universe which seems to be infinitely growing. And I mean, what we to talk about the limits of the universe when we've not even like traveled very far outside of the limits of our own solar. Uh, we haven't traveled outside of our solar system as humans, barely, you know, outside of the limit of the moon. Um, so to talk about the limits of the universe. And when it started, when it's going to end in, in a big crunch and where its limits are and how it started 13 billion years ago. And I mean, come on, that's hubris uh, or what's inside of the sun. We don't even, we haven't gone more than what, 13 kilometers below the crust of the earth. Crust, the crust is like an apple skin over the apple. It's like 60 kilometers in total. We've gone 14 kilometers in there. And then we have 2000 miles of mantle and another 2000 miles of core, like whatever that, like to talk about these, these things with such hubris, like that's what it looks like. You know, there's this much crust and this much lava and this much. Now I'm not a, I'm not a hollow earther. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm just saying like there's a lot we don't know, and to have more minds to put those minds to creative solution orientation and is good. It's a good thing to have more people because the universe is big, and who says we can't terraform another planet if we have an already an eighty or hundred year orientation? We went, we might want to practice the way Qaddafi was doing on the Earth by let's say greening some deserts first here in our backyard and get a handle on what are these forces of nature that we're dealing with. But then maybe we might find ourselves taking some of those insights out and looking at Mars in a new light and thinking maybe we can take some of the, this primordial electromagnetic field on Mars and maybe, you know, take some of those ice caps and start creating, a, you know, a, a new atmosphere or something or, or figure out ways of using fusion um, to God knows do what. I mean, maybe we could start terraforming Mars in a serious way and then go beyond that. Maybe. I mean, I think so. Yeah, I would just add on the comment of limits to growth. You know, I've traveled pretty extensively and been all over the place. And I mean, from my experience, I don't think we're, we're as finite, um, you know, in terms of resources. I, mm -hmm. I think that we've still, you know, in, as you mentioned, eight, nine billion, uh, I think, well, we're, I think we're between seven and eight, we're projected to get to nine billion. Um, there's still plenty of stuff to go around. It's just, it, ha it has to do with, you know, who's controlling the resources and, and managing the, the resources. And there's people that don't want to let go, you know, we've got these, billionaires that you know that have hundreds of billions while well you know um that, that have obtained it you know through keeping people poor and so mm -hmm. yeah i think i think that we there's an abundance that we have an abundance and this idea that you know 
the, the growth is, is, is limited and I, I kind of don't buy it. I've been all over the place and you, you can see we still got a long ways to go and we can still support a, a lot of people. Um, and I guess we'll continue the conversation in, in a month and a half or two uh, again. And so uh, I, I love your Substack at matthewerritt.substack.com and your website is canadianpatriot.org. Uh, any other website or project we should know about uh, apart from people going out and, and getting the book? Yeah, um, there's also the, I, I co-wrote the book with my wife, Cynthia Chung, and uh, together we also run a nonprofit organization called the Rising Tide Foundation uh, in Montreal, and it's uh, risingtidefoundation.net. We do a lot of projects. Uh, we're currently building a, a big dodecahedral observatory with uh, one of our associates um, as a teaching, a new type of teaching template, uh, which is, which is a, a interesting experiment. We're raising funds with that as well, by the way, so if people want to help out with that please, we have to buy a big, big 35 inch telescope. Um, the other thing is we do weekly seminars. So every Sunday we have uh, different lecturers, uh, different people who are just great minds in different parts of whatever field that uh, they have contributed to, um, who have been giving presentations and this has been going on for two years now, every Sunday afternoon. Um, so we're going to have something on US-Russian relations from 1776 to the future. In uh, not this Sunday, but the Sunday afterwards. Anybody who wants to get uh, get involved with these things can just uh, write to info at risingtidefoundation.net. And uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Yeah, I forgot about them, uh, Rising Tide uh, Foundation. And uh, everyone, be sure to bookmark Matt's website, check out the new book, uh, and subscribe to him everywhere. And it was it was good talking again. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and Leave a donation, if possible, via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.